The Carpet People by Terry Pratchett Read by Tony Robinson They called themselves the Munrungs. It meant the people, or the true human beings. It's what most people call themselves to begin with. And then one day the tribe meets some other people and gives them a name like the other people, or if it's not been a good day, the enemy. If only they'd think up a name like some more true human beings, it'd save a lot of trouble later on. Not that the Munrungs were in any way primitive. Pismire said they had a rich native cultural inheritance. He meant stories. Pismire knew all the old stories and many new ones, and used to tell them while the whole tribe listened enthralled and the nighttime fires crumbled to ashes. The oldest story was the shortest. The tribe knew it by heart. It was a story told in many languages all over the carpet. In the beginning, said Pismire, there was nothing but endless flatness. Then came the carpet which covered the flatness. It was young in those days. There was no dust among the hairs. They were slim and straight, not bent and crusty like they are today. And the carpet was empty. Then came the dust which fell upon the carpet, drifting among the hairs, taking root in the deep shadows. From the dust the carpet wove us all. First came the little crawling creatures that make their dwellings in burrows and high in the hairs. Then came the sorats and the weft borers, trumps, goats, groan pipers and the snags. Now... The carpet had life and noise, yes, and death and silence. But there was a thread missing from the weave on the loom of life. The carpet was full of life, but it did not know it was alive. It could be, but it could not think. It did not even know what it was. And so, from the dust, came us, the carpet people. We gave the carpet its name, and named the creatures, and the weaving was complete. Though Frey, who hates life in the carpet, may tread upon us, we are the soul of the carpet, and that is a mighty thing. We are the fruit of the loom. Of course, this is all metaphorical, but I think it's important, don't you? It was the law that every tenth year the people of all the tribes in the Dumai Empire should come and be counted. They didn't go all the way to the great capital city of Ware, but to the little walled town of Tregon Marus. The counting was always a great occasion. Tregon Marus would double in size and importance overnight as tribal tents were pitched outside its walls. And there was the counting itself. New names were added to the crackling scrolls, which, the people liked to believe, were taken to where, even to the great palace of the emperor himself. The Dumai clerks laboriously wrote down how many pigs and goats and tromps everybody had, and one by one the people shuffled on to the next table and paid their taxes in furs and skins. Even the youngest babies were carried past the clerks, for the quill pens to wobble and scratch their names on the parchment. 
Many a tribesman got a funny name because a clerk didn't know how to spell, and there's more of that sort of thing in history than you might expect. After five days, the people went back to their homes along the roads the Dumai had built. They went east. Behind them, the road went west until it came to the city of Ware. Beyond Ware, it became the West Road, becoming narrower and more winding until it reached the furthermost western outpost of Rug. Such was the Dumai Empire. It covered almost all of the carpet from the wood wall to the wasteland near Varnish Home in the north. In the west it bordered wild land and the uttermost fringes of the carpet, and southwards the roads ran as far as the hearthlands. The painted people of the Wainscot, the warlike Hibolgs, even the fire-worshippers of Rug, all paid their tribute to the Emperor. Some of them didn't like the Dumai much, usually because the Empire discouraged the small wars and cattle raids, which in the outlying regions were by way of being a recreational activity. The Empire liked peace. So the Munrung tribe went east, and passed out of the chronicles of the Empire for another ten years. Then one year, no more was heard from Tregon Maris. Old Grim Orkson, chieftain of the Munrungs, had two sons. The eldest, Glurk, succeeded his father as chieftain when old Orkson died. To the Munrung way of thinking, which was a slow and deliberate way, there couldn't have been a better choice. He looked just like a second edition of his father, from his broad shoulders to his great thick neck, the battering centre of his strength. Glurk could throw a spear further than anyone. He could wrestle with a snarg and wore a necklace of their long yellow teeth to prove it. He could lift a horse with one hand, run all day without tiring, and creep up so close to a grazing animal that sometimes they'd die of shock before he had time to raise his spear. Admittedly, he moved his lips when he was thinking, and the thoughts could be seen bumping against one another like dumplings in a stew, but he was not stupid. Not what you call stupid. His brain got there in the end, it just went the long way round. He's a man of few words, and he doesn't know what either of them mean, people said, but not when he was within hearing. One day towards evening, he was trampling homeward through the dusty glades, carrying a bone-tipped hunting spear under one arm. The other arm steadied the long pole that rested on his shoulder. In the middle of the pole, its legs tied together, dangled a snarg. At the other end of the pole was Snibril, Glurk's younger brother. Old Auxon had married early and lived long, so... A wide gap filled by a string of daughters that the chieftain had carefully married off to upright and respected and above all well-off Munrungs separated the brothers. Snibril was slight, especially compared with his brother. Grim had sent him off to the strict Dumai school in Tregon Maris to become a clerk. He can't hardly hold a spear, he said. Maybe a pen would be better. Get some learning in the family. When Snibril had run away for the third time, Pismire came to see Grimm. Pismire was the shaman, a kind of odd-job priest. Most tribes had one, although Pismire was different. For one thing, he washed all the bits that showed at least once every month, and he didn't wear lots of feathers and bones, and he didn't talk like the other shaman in neighbouring tribes. 
Other shaman ate the yellow-spotted mushrooms that were found deep in the hair thickets and said things like, which certainly sounded magical. Pismire said things like, Correct observation followed by meticulous deduction and the precise visualization of goals is vital to the success of any enterprise. Incidentally, don't eat the yellow-spotted mushrooms. Which didn't sound magical at all, but worked a lot better. He was also the official medicine man, and better than the last one they had had, whose idea of medicine was to throw some bones in the air and cry, Pismire just mixed various kinds of rare dust in a bowl, made it into pills, and said things like, Take one of these when you go to bed at night, and another one if you wake up in the morning. And occasionally he offered advice on other matters. Grimm was chopping sticks outside his hut. It'll never work, said Pismire, appearing behind him in that silent way of his. You can't send Snibril off to Tregon again. He's a man-rung. No wonder he keeps running away. He'll never be a clerk. It's not in the blood, man. Let him stay. I'll see he learns to read. If you can learn him, you're welcome, said Grimm, shaking his head. He's a mystery to me. Spends all his time moping around. His mother used to be like that. Of course, she got a bit of sense once she got married. So Snibril went to Pismire's village school with the other children and learnt numbers, letters and the Dumai laws. He enjoyed it, sucking in knowledge as though his life depended on it. It often did, Pismire said. And strangely, he also grew up to be a hunter almost as good as his brother, but in different ways. Glurk chased, Snibril watched. When old Grimm died, he was laid in a barrow dug out of the dust of the carpet with his hunting spear by his side. Munrungs had no idea where you went when you died, but there was no reason to go hungry once you got there. Glurk became chieftain, and would have to take the tribe to the next counting. But the messenger to summon them to Tregon Maris was long overdue, and that worried Glurk. Usually the Dumai were very reliable especially over tax-gathering, but as he and his brother wandered homeward that evening, he kept his thoughts to himself. Snibril grunted and heaved the pole onto his other shoulder. "'Can't we stop for a rest?' he said. Five minutes won't hurt, and my head aches.' Five minutes, then,' said Glurk. "'No more. It's getting dark.' They had reached the Dumai Road, and not far north of it lay the wood wall, home, and supper. They sat down. Both brothers gazed down the road, shining in the dim evening air. The road stretched west, a glowing line in the darkness. It had fascinated Snibril, ever since his father had told him that all roads led to where. So it was only the road that lay between the doorway of his hut and the threshold of the Emperor's palace, he thought. He put his head in his hands. The ache was worse. It felt as though he was being squeezed. The carpet had felt wrong too today. The hunting had been hard. Snibril groaned. He'd have to ask Pismire for a pill. 
A shadow flickered high up in the hairs and flashed away towards the south. There was a sound so loud as to be felt by the whole body hitting the carpet with horrible suddenness. The brothers sprawled in the dust as the hairs around them groaned and screamed in the gale. Glurk gripped the rough bark of a hare and hauled himself upright, straining against the storm that whipped round him. All round the hairs waved like a grey sea. Holding on tightly with one hand, Glurk reached out with the other and hauled his brother to safety. Then, as quickly as it had come, the storm veered south, and the darkness followed it. Snibril blinked. Whatever it was, it had taken the headache with it. His ears popped. Then he heard the sound of hooves on the road as the wind died away. They got louder very quickly and sounded wild and frightened, as though the horse was running free. When it appeared, it was riderless. Its ears lay back flat on its head, and its eyes flashed green with terror. The white coat glistened with sweat. Reins cracked across the saddle with the fury of the gallop. Snibril leapt in its path. Then, as the creature hurtled by him, he snatched at the reins, raced for a second by the pounding hooves, and flung himself up into the saddle. Why he did that, he never knew. He just couldn't imagine not doing it. They rode into the village, the quietened horse carrying them and dragging the snarg behind it. The village stockade had been broken in several places, and grit boulders had smashed some huts. Glurk climbed down from the horse's back and walked slowly towards his home, or what had been his home. The rest of the tribe stopped talking and drew back, awed, to let him pass. A hare had fallen, a big one. It had crushed the stockade, and the tip of it lay across what was left of the oxen hut. Bertha Oxen came running forward with her children round her and flung herself into his arms. Pismar got it out before the hare fell! she cried. Whatever shall we do? He patted her absently, but went on staring at the ruined hut. Then he climbed along up the mound of wreckage and prodded about. So silent was the crowd that every sound he made echoed. Then he raised his fist above him and swore. He cursed by the hares, by the dark caverns of underlay, by the demons of the floor, by the weft and by the warp, he bellowed the unutterable words and swore the oath of Ret Watshud the frugal. When he had finished, the air trembled. He flopped down on the wreckage and sat with his head in his hands, and no one dared approach. Snibril dismounted and wandered over to where Pismire was standing gloomily wrapped in his goatskin cloak. He shouldn't have said the unutterable words, said Pismire more or less to himself. It's all superstition, of course, but that's not to say it isn't real. Oh, hello. I see you survived. What did this? It used to be called Frey, said Pismire. I thought that was just an old story. Doesn't mean it was untrue. I'm sure it was Frey. The changes in air pressure to begin with, the, the animals sensed it, just like it said in the... Um, he stopped. Just like I read somewhere, he said awkwardly. He glanced past Snibril and brightened up. You've got a horse, I see. I uh, think it's been hurt. Pismire walked to the horse and examined it carefully. 
It's to my eye, of course, he said. Someone fetch my herb box. Something's attacked him. See? Here? Not deep, but it should be dressed. A magnificent beast. Magnificent. No, um, rider? We rode up the road away, but we didn't see anyone. Pismire stroked the sleek coat. Something scared him. Not Frey. Something days ago. It wasn't bandits. They don't leave claw marks. A snag could have made that if it was three times its normal size. Oh, dear. And there are such, he said. The cry came. It was a mocking screech that split the darkness. The horse reared. A fire had already been lit at the break in the wall, and some hunters ran towards it, spears ready. They stopped. On the further side there was a mounted shape in the darkness, and two pairs of eyes. One was a sullen red, one pair shimmered green. They stared unblinking over the flames at the villagers. Glurk snatched a spear from one of the gaping men and pushed his way forward. Nothing but a snog, he growled and threw. The spear struck something, but the green eyes only grew brighter. Pismire ran forward with the blazing stick in his hand and hurled it at the eyes. They blinked and were gone. With them went the spell. Cries went up, and ashamed of their fear, the hunters surged forward. Stop! shouted Pismire. Idiots! That was a black snag, not like the brown ones you get around here. You know the stories? They're from the furthest corners, from the unswept regions. From the north, from the white cliff of the wood wall itself, came again the cry of a snag. This time it did not die away, but stopped abruptly. Pismire stared north for a second, then turned to Glurk and Snibril. You have been found, he said. That was what brought this horse here, fear of the snags. Now they have discovered the village, you can't stay. They'll come every night, until one night you won't fight back hard enough. Leave tomorrow. We can't just... Glurk began. You can. You must. Frey is back, and all the things that come after, do you understand? No, said Glurk. Then trust me said Pismire, and hope that you never do have to understand. Glurk looked worried. But we've never been frightened of snogs. What's special about these? The things that ride on them, said Pismire. There was another pair of eyes, said Glurk uncertainly. Worse than snags, said Pismire. Got much worse weapons than teeth and claws. They've got brains. Well, that's the lot. Come on, said Glurk, taking a last look at the ruins of the hut. Just a minute, said Snibril. His possessions fitted easily into one fur pack, but he rummaged through them in case anything had been left behind. Right at the bottom, Snibril's fingers closed round a lumpy bag. He lifted it out carefully, taking care not to damage its contents, and opened it. Two, five, eight, nine. All there. Snibril held up the coins which gleamed with varnish. They had been shaped from the red wood of the chair-leg mines. 
One side of each coin carried a carving of the emperor's head. They were Tarnarii, the coins of the Dumaii, and they cost many skins at Trigon Marus. Snibril never quite understood it, but it seemed that so great was the Dumaii's love for their emperor, they would give and take the little wooden pictures of him in exchange for skins and fur. At least, so Pismaya had said. It was less than a day since Frey had come. But what a day. Arguments, mostly. The richer Munrungs hadn't wanted to leave, especially since no one had a clear idea of where they would go, and Pismaya had gone off somewhere, on business of his own. Then, in the middle of the morning, they had heard snarg cries in the south. Someone else said he saw eyes peering over the stockade. After that, the argument stopped. The Munrungs were used to travelling, as people suddenly pointed out. They'd been planning this move for months, probably. No one could say they were running away. They were walking away, quite slowly. Before mid-afternoon, the area inside the stockade was filled with carts, cows and people carrying furniture. Now the bustle was over, and they all waited for Glurk. His cart was the finest, a family heirloom, with a curved roof covered with furs. It needed four ponies to pull it. Behind it, a string of pack ponies, laden with the oxen wealth in furs, waited patiently. Then came the lesser carts, and after them the poorer hand carts, and the families that could only afford one pony and one-third shares in a cow. At last came the people on foot. It seemed to Snibril that those who carried all their personal goods in one hand looked a bit more cheerful than those who were leaving half theirs behind. Now they needed Pismire. Where was he? Isn't he here? said Glurk. Well, he knows we're going. He'll be along. I'm going on ahead to find him, said Snibril shortly. Well, tell him we'll be moving along towards Burnt End, along the old tracks, said Glurk. Snibril was trotting up the road on the white horse ahead of the procession. The horse had been named Roland. No one questioned his right to name it or to own it. The Munrungs on the whole agreed with Dumai laws, but finders keepers was one of the oldest laws of all. A little way on he turned off the road, and soon the dazzling white wooden cliff of the wood wall rose above the hares. Snibril felt the great immensity of it all around him, stretching far beyond the furthermost limits of the empire. And if the Dumai road might lead to distant places, where might this old track lead? Pismire lived in a shack near the old wood quarry. Some thin half-wild goats skipped out of the way as Roland trotted into the clearing. Pismire was not there, nor was his little pony. But a freshly tanned snarg skin was hanging by the cave, and someone was lying on a heap of ferns by a small fire, with his hat pulled down over his face. Snibril left Roland in the shade of the hares, and drew his knife. He crept towards the sleeper, and made to raise his hat brim with the knife point. There was a blur of activity. It ended with Snibril flat on his back, his own knife pressed to his throat, the stranger's tanned face inches from his own. The eyes opened. He's just waking up, Snibril thought through his terror. Hmm? Ah, a Munrung, said the stranger, half to himself. Harmless. He stood up. Pismire said one of you might show up. Where is he? Gone off to Tregon Marus. 
He should be back soon. Who are you? I like the name Bain. He was clean-shaven, unusual in anyone but young Dumai boys, and his red-gold hair was bound up in a plait down his back. His face was hard and lined, except for his grin. At his belt hung a fierce-looking short sword, and there was a spear beside his pack. I was following mules, he said, and saw the blankness in Snibril's face. Creatures from the unswept regions originally, nasty pieces of work. They ride around on these things, he indicated the skin. Weren't you afraid of the eyes? Bane laughed and picked up his spear. Then Pismire was with them. The old man showed no surprise that Snibril was there. Trigon, Maris, has fallen, he said slowly. Bane groaned. I mean fallen, said Pismire. Destroyed and snags everywhere in the ruins. Frey has crushed the town. Where have the tribe gone? Burnt end? Good enough. Very defensible situation. Come on. Bane had a small pony grazing among the hares. They set off, keeping close to the wooden cliff. But what is Frey? said Snibril. I remember you telling stories about old times, but that was long ago. Some kind of monster, not something real. The moles worship it, said Bane. I'm uh, something of an expert. Snibril looked puzzled. The Munrungs didn't have gods. Life was complicated enough as it was. I have theories, said Pismire. I've read some old books. Never mind about the stories. They're just metaphors. Interesting lies, translated Bane. More like ways of telling things without having to do much explaining. Frey is some kind of force. There were people who used to know more, I think. There were old stories about old cities that suddenly vanished. Just legends now. Beneath the rugged tip of the wood wall that was called Burnt End, the track divided, going west and north. Glurk stopped his cart and looked up at the burnt black crags. He sniffed the air. I have forebodings, he told his wife. We'll wait for Snibril. He cupped his hands round his mouth. Gather the cart round in a circle, he cried. We'll camp here. If you could put up with the unpleasantness and the ash, Burnt End was a safe place to be. The hairs had broken when the wood wall fell onto the carpet, so there was not much cover for attackers. The feel of the place was unsettling. Glurk ordered an armed man to sit on top of every cart in the circle and set others to lighting fires and readying the camp for the night. Soon cooking fires sprang up within the ring. Glurk climbed on top of his cart and peered back down the track. Fires got seen by things... Were snargs out there? Well, they could deal with snargs. Snargs had just enough brains to know not to attack a village. Night wore on, and the guards nodded. Outside the bright ring, deeper shadows padded among the hairs, and it seemed as though around the ring of light a darker ring had grown. They attacked 
to the south of the ring. There was a howl, then a cart rocked. Its guard leapt for his life. It was Gerth, Glurk's eldest son. Ulam! Ulam! Hold the ring! cried Glurk, and leapt across the fire with a spear in either hand. One he hurled as he ran, and he heard it hit. These were not like the snarks he knew, came a cold thought out of his mind. They were daring to attack, and they carried men on their backs, or things like men at least, with green eyes and long teeth. Glurk saw another cart go over, and then above him loomed a snarg with a shining collar. There was a roar and a crash, and... Darkness spread along his arm and drifted across his mind like nightfall. The fires made a beacon for the three as they led their mounts down from the hidden path. We should head into the Empire, said Pismire. Things won't be any... He stopped. Bane was drawing his sword. He dismounted quietly and inched forward. With his free hand, he motioned Pismire to go on talking. And, of course, where is so nice at this time of year? said Pismire hurriedly. Have you um, known Bane long? said Snibril. He's an old friend. But who is... Bane took one step forward, then whirled round and brought his sword whistling down into the shadows at his side. There was a grunt, and a body fell silently across the path. Snibril gasped and drew back. It wore armour of black leather, sewn with bone rings. At first sight, the figure was manlike, but when Snibril went closer, he saw the hairy pelt and paws, and the long animal face. Mules, said Bane. I can smell them. We must make haste, said Pismire. They never move alone. But it's like a human, said Snibril. I thought there were only monsters and animals in the unswept regions. The distant fires were blotted out for an instant, and a snarg cried. Before it had died away, Snibril was in Roland's saddle and away, the others in close pursuit. As they entered the clearing and the broken rings of carts, Snibril felt the horse bunch itself together for the leap. He clung on tightly as they cleared a cart's roof and landed lightly inside the ring. Glurk lay still beneath one huge paw of a snarg, the biggest Snibril had ever seen. The great burning eyes moved and saw Snibril. He wanted to run, but the horse didn't budge. The rider on the snarg's back had also seen him. It grinned unpleasantly. Snibril slipped from the horse's back and picked up Glurk's spear. It was heavy. Glurk went in for heavy spears. He held it cautiously, keeping the point aimed directly at the snarg. The snarg and its rider turned to follow him as he moved around. He could see Roland. He'd sidled in a half-circle, and now the snarg and its rider were behind the horse. Roland's tail twitched, and he kicked. Both hooves struck together. The rider sailed past Snibril's shoulder. He was dead already. No one could look like that and still be alive. The snarg growled in astonishment, glared at Snibril, and leapt. You should never have to chase prey, Pismire had always said. Snibril didn't even think. He left the butt-end of the spear wedged in the ground and held on tightly. The snarg realised that it had done something stupid when it was in mid-air, but by then it was too late, because it was hurling itself not at some weak creature, but at a spearhead. That was the first battle.
When Snibril awoke, the night was nearly past. He felt warm and aching. He shut his eyes again hurriedly. You're awake, said Bane. Roland was tethered to a nearby hare. Snibril sat up and yawned. What happened? Is everyone all right? Oh, yes. You Munrungs are difficult to kill. But plenty were injured. Your brother the worst, I fear. Pismire is with him now. Snibril murmured something and looked around him. The camp was as peaceful as a camp could be. The attack had been beaten off. Without saying a word, Bane raked a bundle out of the ashes of the fire. Warm smells rose from it. Haunch of snag baked in its own juices, he said. I killed the owner myself, I'm pleased to say. I'll have a piece with no fat on it, said Pismire, stepping down from the auction cart. Snibril saw the weariness in the old man's face. His herb bag lay beside him, almost empty. Oh, he's as strong as a horse, he said in answer to their unspoken question. He should stay in bed for at least two days. So I told Bertha six. He looked at Snibril. What about you? You might not have escaped half so easily. I know it's useless to say all this, he added, catching Bane's grin. But I wish that the people who sing about the deeds of heroes would think about the people who have to clear up after them. He held up his herb bag. And with this, he said, just different types of dust, a few useful plants. That's not medicine. Oh, we've lost such a lot. You said that before, said Snibril. What have we lost? Knowledge. Proper medicine books. If you don't look after knowledge, it goes away. Look at this. He threw down what looked like a belt made up of seven different coloured squares linked together with thongs. That was made by whites. Go on, ask me. Whites, said Snibril obediently. A tribe. In the old days... The tribe, the first carpet people, the ones who crossed the tiles and brought back fire. They quarried wood at the wood wall. They found out how to melt varnish off a chair leg. Don't see them so much nowadays, but they used to be around a lot, pushing these big varnish boilers from tribe to tribe. Anyway, they used to make these belts. Of course, that was long ago. I haven't seen whites for years. And now their belts turn up as collars on these things. We've lost so much. We wrote too much down and forgot it. He shook his head. I'm going to have a nap. He wandered off to one of the carts. What did he mean? said Snibril. A nap, said Bane. It's like a short sleep. I mean about writing down too much. What does that mean? Bane looked uncomfortable. That's up to him to tell you, he said. Everyone has things they remember. Snibril watched him patting Roland absently on the muzzle. Who was Bane if it came to that? He looked like a wild man, but there was something about him. Every move he made was deliberate and careful as if he'd rehearsed it beforehand. Snibril wasn't sure if Bane was a friend. He hoped so. He'd be a terrible enemy.
A little later they broke camp, with Pismire driving the leading cart. Glurk lay inside, white and shaken, but strong enough to curse colourfully every time they went over a bump. Sometimes prey rumbled far off in the south. Vane and Snibril, now wearing the belt around his waist, rode on ahead. The carpet was changing colour. That in itself was not strange. Here the green was fading to yellow. Some hares bore fruit, large prickly balls that grew right out of the trunk of the hare. After a while, they reached a place where two tracks crossed. Bane was looking down the west path with an odd expression. He pointed, and there, coming slowly up the path, was a heavy wagon drawn by a line of bent, plodding figures. Whites, said Bane. Don't speak to them unless they speak first. I saw them last night, in a dream, began Snibril. Pismire showed no surprise. You've got one of their belts. Snibril slipped the belt from his tunic, and without quite knowing why he did it, slipped it into his pack. The white-drawn wagon rumbled on until it reached the cairn. Both parties looked across at the others. Then a small white left the cart and walked across to Snibril and Bane. A deep hood covered its face. Hello said the white. Hello, said Bane. Hello, nodded the white again. It stood there and said nothing else. Do they understand language? said Snibril. Probably, said Pismire. They invented it. Snibril felt its steady gaze from the hidden eyes, and he felt the hardness of the belt rubbing into his back and shifted uneasily. The white turned its gaze on Bane. Tonight we eat the Feast of Bronze. You are invited. You will accept. Seven only, when the night-time fires are lit. We accept, said Bane gravely. The white turned on his heel and strode back to the wagon. Tonight, said Pismire. The Feast of Bronze, eh? Amazing. I thought they never invited strangers. Who's invited who? growled someone from inside the cart. There was a stamping about, and Glurk's head poked through the curtains over the front. You know what I said about getting up, Pismire began. Whites? I thought they were just a children's story, Glurk said after it had been explained to him. Still, it's a free meal. What's wrong with that? Still the truth, I never heard of a bad white. I'd hardly heard of whites at all until now, said Snibril. There's no question of refusing to go, said Pismire. That's right, said Bane. But it's so easy to get things wrong. You know how sensitive they are. They've got all kinds of strange beliefs. Tell them, General. Well, said Bane, seven's very important to them. Seven elements in the carpet, seven coloured. Tell them about the chaise. I was coming to that. Seven chaise. They're like periods of time. Only the whites know how long. Remember the belt? Seven squares, and each represents a chay. So the chay of salt, you see, is a time when people prosper and trade. 
And the Che of Grit is when they build empires and walls. Am I going too fast? General, thought Snibril. That's what Pismire said. He tried to recall what Bane had been saying. Oh, so tonight's feast means we're in the Che of Bronze, yeah? It means it's starting, said Pismire. It's a time of war and destruction. Tonight, whites all over the carpet will celebrate the Feast of Bronze. It's something to do with their memories. All right, said Clerk. We'll go. They entered the whites' little camp sheepishly, keeping together. The oldest white in the group was the Master. There were twenty-one in this group, and Pismire, looking at their cart, pointed out the big varnish boiler on top of it. Snibril wondered how long it would be before anyone noticed he had shoved the belt back in his pack. But he wasn't going to give it up, he told himself. There were seven fires close together and three whites around each. They looked identical. Oh, there's something else I forgot to tell you, said Pismire, as the whites busied themselves over their cooking pots. They have perfect memories. Mm. They remember everything. That's why they find it so hard to talk to ordinary people. I don't understand, said Snibril. Don't be surprised if they give you answers before you've asked the question. Their minds work differently. The past and future are all the same to them. They remember things that haven't happened yet. Snibril's jaw dropped. Then we could ask them, he began. No, we mustn't. I am Norrell, the kiln master, said the white on Snibril's left. Um, my name? Yes. We? Yes. There was... I know. How? You're going to tell me after dinner. Oh. Um, you really know everything that's going to happen, was all Snibril could think of to say. There was the trace of a smile in the depths of the hood. Not... Everything. How can anyone know everything? But a number of things I do know, yes. Snibril looked around desperately. But, but supposing you knew when you were going to die? Yes, said Norrell politely. You could just make sure you weren't there. Weren't there when you died? said the white. That would be a good trick. No, I mean, you could avoid... I know what you mean. But we couldn't. We have to follow the thread. The one thread. We mustn't break it. Doesn't anything ever come as a surprise? said Snibril. I don't know. What is a surprise? Can you tell me what's going to happen to me? To, to all of us? It would help a lot to know the future. The dark hood turned towards him. It wouldn't. We need help, said Snibril in a frantic whisper. What's Frey? Where can we go to be safe? Can't you tell us? The white leant closer. Can you keep a secret? It said conspiratorially. Yes, said Snibril. Really? Keep a secret, even though you'd give anything to tell other people. Can you really keep a secret? Um, yes. Well, said the white, leaning back again. So can we.
but enjoy your meal. Will I? Yes, you certainly did. And you may keep the belt. Oh, you know I've got the belt. I do now. Bain and Pismire were quiet when the travellers went back to their carts. Did they tell you anything? asked Snibril. No, said Pismire. They never do, but it's the way they acted, said Bain. They can't help it. They don't like what it is. They're not telling us, said Pismire. A week passed. The carts went on northward. Around them, the carpet changed. On either side of the narrow track, the hairs towered up, and now they were deep red. To Snibril, it seemed as though they were walking through a great fire that had been frozen suddenly. But it was cool and peaceful, and at night, for the first time since they'd left the village, they heard no snarks. And that, of course, made people want to stop. At least for a few weeks, said Cadmic Hargolder, the spearmaker. They've probably forgotten about us anyway, and perhaps we can go home. They don't forget, said Bane. Not them. Besides, we must go on. Head for where? You two can if you like, said Cadmic. As for me... As for us, we'll keep together, Cadmic, at least while I'm chief of this tribe, said Glurk. If any of you think different... Well... There was something in that well. It was a very deep well. It was full of unspoken threats. But there were still angry mutterings. Then they came across the mool. It was while Snibril and Bane were walking ahead along the track out of sight, but within hearing of the carts. Snibril said little. He kept thinking about General. He'd seen Dumai officers occasionally, not often, Trigon Maris wasn't very important. Bane moved like a soldier. People called generals shouldn't go around looking so shabby. And now, suddenly, they were going to wear, apparently. Things would be all right in wear, though. It was the most famous place in the carpet, better than anywhere else, safe. There were legions and legions of soldiers there. Neither saw them all until they were almost on top of it. It sat astride its snarg in the middle of the track, hand halfway to sword hilt, staring straight at them with a look of terror. Bane gave a grunt and drew his sword, but Snibril's arm shot out and grabbed his shoulder. Look at it, said Snibril. Observe, Pismire always said, before acting. The mool hadn't moved. Snibril crept forward. Then reaching up, he tapped the creature on its snout. Without saying a word, he pointed to the snarg's legs. Thick drifts of dust lay undisturbed around them. The mool sat there, a statue, staring blankly at nothing. How could it... Snibriel began. Dunno, Pismire might, said Bane rather roughly because he felt a bit of a fool. Come on, you take its head and I'll take its legs. <laughs> 